Upon the current issues and the Constitution show, Professor Wilson will encourage you to stay informed and read the U.S. Constitution. The show is intended to shine a light on current issues that impact your daily life. Professor Wilson has twice received the American History Teacher of the Year Award in the state of West Virginia and is the recipient of many honors. He served in the armed forces and is currently a college professor. He is a true patriot who believes the understanding of the Constitution is key to our future and our future freedoms rest with informed youth. Please join us live where you can ask questions or listen on your time. Just follow the show feed to receive the latest shows delivered right to you. Don't miss any of these informative episodes. Are you ready? Take out a copy of the U.S. Constitution, a notepad, and let's get ready to learn. Well, I'm excited. That intro always gets me revved up. And uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and with me on the line is Professor Wilson. Welcome, Woody. Thank you, Felice. Glad to be here, as always. Yeah, do you notice how he's introduced you as Professor Wilson and then I slip into <laughs> Hi Woody. Yeah. Uh That's well quite all right. you are my brother in law, so uh I guess I get family privileges here, I don't know. But um but anyway, Woody, um today we're going to discuss gun control along with some others and I know um people are interested to hear what you have to say about that. Uh, so I'm going to let you uh, begin with your introduction, and uh, then I, I do have um, some questions for you. So I'll jump in as they come along, and remember, we'll take a break um, to run our commercial uh, for Media Angels in just a little bit. Okay, you go ahead and interrupt me anytime you want to. If you have a question, that's, uh, let's get on that right away. That's why we're here. Okay, okay. so? Uh, sounds good. All right. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, glad to be back with you once again. Last week at the end of the class, ran out of time. I just needed another 60 seconds, but it wasn't there. I wanted to read to you a letter that I found in our local town or city uh, newspaper, and uh, I read the whole thing and was uh, really taken by it, but I was thinking at the same time, I know all this. I'm not learning anything here. It's old hat stuff. But when I got to the end of it, I saw that it was written by a friend of mine who serves on the same committee, the education committee, that I do with the Tea Party. So, well, that made it more grandiose, I think, and I went back and read it again. And he really hits in the first paragraph. I'm just going to read the first paragraph to you. He hits the big issues of the day, the issues that right now are dividing Republicans from Democrats, conservatives uh, uh, from from liberals, uh, and these are the issues that uh, many of them have been around for a very long time, and uh, many of them are somewhat new, and all of these issues are going to play a big part. This is what the candidates are going to be talking about in the congressional election of, of 2014, this year, November, and the presidential and congressional election in 2016. Now remember that representatives face re-elections, members of the House face re-election every two years, senators every six years. And every two years we re-elect or we hold a senatorial election along with the House election and 
one-third of the senators are up for re-election. This keeps a strong and continuous uh, body in the Senate. And they have uh, a lot of responsibilities that the House doesn't have, like approving appointments, um, um, uh, treaties, approving treaties, and, and they kind of work with the president in the national sense. The Senate's uh, focus is more national and uh, the representative's focus is more state and district oriented. So nonetheless, these are the issues mentioned by my friend that we're going to hear about. You already have heard about many of them in this radio show, and of course you follow current events as well. So here we go. Tired of Obamacare? Tired of gun control? Tired of war on coal? Tired of lies? deception, and outright hypocrisy? Tired of a listless economy? Tired of a leaderless nation? Tired of UN involvement in your lives? Tired of living in a state where being first by being last in all good things is the norm? Tired of states accepting federal money in exchange for control of their education? Tired of loss of your freedom? Tired of politicians? that use your tax money to buy votes? It's, if so, it's time to engage, time to be heard, time to be effective. I think he sums it up pretty well, uh, the great issues of the day. This is a very smart man. Uh, um, he's in his upper 80s, and he's been around a very long time and paying attention and being totally involved for a very long time, all of his life, as a matter of fact. He goes on in his letter, by the way, to explain uh, to people how they can engage, how can you engage, and we talked about that before. If you're 18 years old, you can vote. You can join a, a party. You can join a local NGO or um, other type of political group. You can send money to candidates of your choice. You can raise money for candidates of your choice. You can go down to your local Democrat or Republican um, area office headquarters, and you can pick up signs and distribute them. You can pick up uh, literature and distribute them in your neighborhoods. Uh, you can put up a sign in your yard or someplace on uh, uh, non-private property. Um, you can go down to your local headquarters and tell them, okay, I'll spend um, two hours twice a week uh, making phone calls. Uh, to members of my party, uh, urging them to get out and vote and talking about what the issues are. So a lot of things that you can do, you can be active, you can be engaged, you can make a difference. So if you're tired of all the things my friend just talked about, um, then it's time for you to look at getting engaged. It's February, and the election is not far away. Uh, second item in the news, uh, this one kind of surprised me. Um, uh, Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, this should be a dignified position. It should be uh, occupied by dignified people. And to my way of thinking, it's a big disappointment. I've always had some respect for John Kerry, uh, but he lost that. In a speech he made in Jakarta, Indonesia, this past Sunday, I mean, to go to a foreign country and do this, what he did was he was talking about climate change, global warming, and he attacked climate change skeptics, people like me, maybe people like you, 
um, that, that we're skeptical that there is climate, uh, global warming because we're still waiting for the facts that prove it to be true. And you guys have been working on this for 25 or 30 years. Why can't you prove it? And we know that you have cheated with the data. Uh, we have your emails on two occasions, from both from Great Britain and Oslo, Norway, where your climatology scientists were emailing each other and deciding what data to use and what data to leave out. And they were talking specifically about data that would tend to contradict the idea of global warming that they had gathered scientifically. They're going to leave it out. Okay? So, yeah, there's a lot of skeptics out here. Uh, when you do things like that, you're basically creating a hoax, and we know it, and you have not proven it. Now, how hard is it? I just saw a video the other day of a young man that went up into the troposphere and skydived, free fall, about 20 miles uh, down to Earth. And um, I figure if we could get a skydiver up there, we could get a team of scientists up there or some kind of a vehicle that measures the troposphere and the outer layer, measures the CO2 um, on a regular basis. It just doesn't seem to me that hard. I, I kind of think I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic, and I think maybe they don't do what I just suggested because they know what they'll find. Now, if they can convince us and convince world leaders that, the globe is warming up, and Miami is going to be underwater, and we're all going to have to move to the equator um, and live up in the mountains because the sea levels will rise, um, all of those things. If they can convince us in the name of our children and our grandchildren that we need to do what they say, it means that they will get trillions of dollars in grants, jobs, institutes, uh, laboratories, and... <laughs> You know, they're going to live the high life, basically, um, if they can convince. But they're not convincing. Well, apparently, and sadly, Secretary of State John Kerry, I mean, he's the Secretary of State, you know. He's not the uh, head of some science agency. Secretary of State, he's into diplomacy and dealing with wars and conflict situations and poverty in the third world. But here he is talking about global warming and attacking me. And he compared climate change skeptics to people who believe that the world is flat. In other words, he's saying that we are stupid or that we are ignorant. And this is an old liberal tactic. Uh, let me ask you to do something. Write down the name Saul, S-A-U-L, Linsky, L-I-N-S-K-Y. And this was a very liberal, far-left, radical, liberal gentleman uh, many decades ago who wrote guidelines for advancing a liberal agenda. And one of the things you do, if people disagree with what you say, don't try to reason with them. Don't use logic. Don't even use facts. Attack them. Call them names. Demonize them. Call them stupid. And which is exactly, so John Kerry has taken a, taken a look at Saul Linsky's book, as have many other liberals. And now we are very ignorant people who believe that the globe is warming up, who believe that the globe is not warming up, and we also believe that the world is flat. 
Well, one of us uh, flat earthers is a man named Richard Lindzen of MIT, Harvard graduate. This guy, Lindzen, um, by the way, if you want to look him up, it's L-I-N-D-L-I-N-D-Z-E-N. He was a big star, uh, science star, uh, scientist star at Harvard uh, University, and um, he lived up to the promise and as a professor of MIT, he was considered one of the world's leading climatologists. That's the field he chose. Until he disagreed with global warming theory. Then he wasn't the star anymore. And all of a sudden, he was a, the denizen. He was um, blackballed. Uh, he could no longer uh, publish journals, or publish articles in scientific journals. They can no longer get grants. Other scientists are getting grants to study global warming. He can't get grants anymore. And he has been called all kinds of names uh, by the global warming people. You know, if you got to do that, you probably don't have much in the way of fact and argumentation. So this they did to Richard Lindzen. One of the uh, one of the most accomplished scientists in climatology in the world, and all of a sudden he is stupid and he is ignorant, according to Secretary of State John Kerry. So it's their tactic, um, liberal army, any hint of doubt when it comes to predictions of climate doom or anything else, is evidence of, and here are words that we see again and again and again in the media. We are greedy. We are stupid. We have no sense of morality, or we're psychologically deranged. I just wanted to bring that up, and this has been going on for uh, quite some time, this kind of, uh, of attack and demonizing of, of people who disagree. But I just wanted to bring this up because I, I'm trying to work it out. I'm very disappointed in John Kerry. I'm very disappointed that our Secretary of State would lower himself to this level of rhetoric in a foreign country. I remember um, when Bill Clinton was running for president, I learned, and he was an anti-war protester in America. Okay, fine, no problem, freedom of speech, right to assemble, all of that. But he went to Great Britain, and then he went to Moscow, protesting against the war. And we had young men dying in the rice paddies. And this guy is going to other countries and significantly criticizing America. And I see John Kerry doing the same thing. What a disappointment. Moving on. Have you heard the term lawless presidency? Just wanted you to know very briefly that uh, I'm seeing this more and more in the media. We're even hearing it from liberals and Democrats. And liberals and Democrats are like rats uh, leaving the sinking ship, are criticizing or distancing themselves from Obama. Rand Paul, I think we talked about, is suing the president over their NSA spying. They gathered millions of our phone numbers. They even spied on heads of state like Angela Merkel, the prime minister of Germany, of, of our allies. They were spying on them, and they're spying on us. And um, so Rand Paul is suing the president over that. He almost certainly in this lawsuit will bring out the truth, and we will know that whether the president knew that the NSA was doing this, and of course he did. He is the 
chief executive, the commander-in-chief. Also, a new one uh, just announced uh, this past Monday, two days ago, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin filed a lawsuit against the president. And what he wants to do is block the federal government from helping to pay for health care coverage for members of Congress and their staffs. And I, I totally agree with this. As a matter of fact, I got an email from him uh, two days ago, and he wants money. I'm thinking about sending him $25. I don't know. Um, most of my money will go to West, West Virginia candidates. But uh, uh, he, is, uh, he is saying that Congress should be held to the same laws. And I've heard this many times, and I totally agree with it. People in Congress and their families should be held to the same laws that the middle-class working families are held to. Now, middle-classers are not going to get a subsidy from the federal government to help them pay for tremendously significant increases in health care coverage in terms of costs. But congressmen will get the subsidy that will defray their costs. Not fair. All right, so I'm kind of interested in this. I believe this is the fifth. I need to research this, but I think this is the fifth lawsuit now against the president. Uh, one of them is before the Supreme Court having to do with uh, Affordable Care Act implementation. Benghazi is back in the news. Um, people are uh, – information was released, and I don't know the source. Nobody knows it's uh, being held um, – close to the vest by the people who are, are, have, have gained access, that Hillary Clinton knew, as Secretary of State, that the ambassador at Benghazi in Libya had asked on three different occasions for reinforcements, for protection. Uh, there had been terrorist attacks in Benghazi, and there had been terrorist threats in Benghazi, and the ambassador was rightly worried. And this embassy is just out there. Anybody could walk in and, and throw a hand grenade. Anybody. Uh, it's not walled. It uh, doesn't have security devices. Nothing like that. And um, his three requests fell on deaf ears. As a result, he and three other Americans died on that night. So Benghazi is back in the news, and if Hillary Clinton wants to run for president, she better figure out how to explain this thing. There are a whole bunch of people also that were involved in that that were muzzled. They signed what were called non-disclosure agreements. If they didn't sign it, they were fired. They lose their health care, their benefits, and all those kinds of things. So there are a lot of people out there that know the truth uh, that are basically being muzzled by the Department of State. So those things are in the news and plenty of other things. I know that you are following current events regularly, and probably you already knew something about what we just talked about. Now, as Felice said, let's get into gun control. Uh, it's been an issue for quite some time. This goes back to the 1960s, and this is a long-term issue. And it just it comes bouncing back every now Every time there's a shooting, a mass shooting, or a serial killer is caught, uh, anything like that, then uh, um, people begin to shout and, and scream for gun control. We'll talk about that in a minute. But back in December, before Christmas, while he and his family were vacationing in Honolulu at taxpayers' expense, that cost us a few million, sometimes you've got to think about egalitarianism, 
I can't afford to go vacation in Honolulu and play golf and all that uh, for three weeks. I just cannot afford that. And uh, the president and his family go, and I help to pay for it. So I can't pay for my own, but I have to pay for his. I, I think about that sometimes. I'm not sh- saying pre- there's a place called Camp David um, up in Maryland, just a few miles away, like a 20-minute helicopter ride. You should go up there and vacation. Um, you know, that would be a lot less expensive. Anyway, while he was in Honolulu, Obama announced two new executive orders, heard of that before, designed to promote his own personal or the liberal uh, gun control agenda and move it forward, basically. And these two initiatives or executive orders together would make it easier for states to provide information about people in their states with mental illness to the federal background check system. Now, we do have a federal background check system. And if you go to a store and you legitimately uh, uh, buy a weapon, then you fill out this form and all this information is sent to this federal database and you checked out to see if you're a criminal, uh, mental illness, uh, any other kinds of things that would preclude you from buying a weapon. Well, I don't think anybody's going to much argue with this. We all agree that people with mental illnesses should probably not be able to buy weapons, and um, no problem there. But but what is he doing? Um, is this a strategy to be op- open the door for more gun control legislation? And you might be surprised to know, or excuse me, more gun control executive orders. Congress will not pass this stuff. Even Congress that had majority Democratic Party in both houses from 2008 to 2010 would not pass this stuff. Obama is a lame duck president. He knows he's finished. Doesn't have to worry about reelection. So he's going to go. Um, he's going to implement as much of that liberal agenda as he possibly can before he leaves office. Now, last year. Obama went to Congress and asked for tougher background checks for things like gun purchases, new limits on assault weapons, uh, uh, magazine uh, capacities, and things like that. And Congress refused to pass it. Neither house would pass it. So, you know, he had made both of these changes. You know, this is going to be like the Affordable Care Act. It's going to be a signature issue, and you'll go down the history books as the guy that engineered gun control. Uh, and they were his top legislative priorities, and he announced it and started pushing it right after those shootings at that elementary school where about 20 people were killed by a deranged young man in New- Newtown, Connecticut. So after the legislation failed, Obama then promised, this is not when he said, I have a phone and a pen, but he did promise to take whatever steps his administration could take through executive action or through executive orders. So, so far, we have 27 executive orders intended to tighten the rules for gun ownership. So this is Obama, the tip of the liberal spear, uh, using the powers not given to him by the Constitution to advance the liberal agenda as much as possible. And I think they seem to be holding to this theory, and it's not a bad theory, that you get a program going Uh, on the federal level, on the national level. And once you've got it going, instituted, it becomes 
institutionalized. It becomes entrenched, and it is very difficult to extract it. It's very difficult to um, overturn it, but I don't think so. I don't think so. In these cases, you elect a Republican Congress and a Republican president, and the Republican president can simply say 27 executive orders uh, issued by the previous president are hereby repealed by executive order. So I don't think it would be all of that difficult. We'll see what happens. I know it's enormously important, um, you know, who controls the presidency, who controls Congress, who gets to appoint Supreme Court justices. And we're going to see that played out in rapid succession in 2014 and 16. As far as the American people concerned, a recent poll on Obama's gun control measures, 38% approved, 57% disapproved, and that's almost a supermajority. So let's take an amendment, uh, take a look at the amendment if you were turning your Constitution to the Second Amendment. Let's take a look at the language. Okay, so you can look at this in three ways. You look at it, can look at the first phrase, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. All right, that's saying that states can have a militia. Today we call it what? Two words, National Guard. Back in those days, there was no standing army. And when there was a problem that required a military response or military defense, uh, farmers and businessmen would get their muskets and their uh, powder horns and their bag of uh, lead balls, and off to the front they would go. And um, that's a militia. All right, so no problem. Today we have standing armies. We don't really need a militia, but we still do have state militias, and we call them National Guards. So the second part, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Infringed means interfere with. All right? So you can look at, you know, any way you want to, you can put them together and say, okay, the founding fathers thought that because you had to call out the militia that it's absolutely necessary that people have weapons and that they should bring those weapons to fight the, off the British or the French or the Indians or whoever wants to be fought off at any given time. Uh, so militia is no longer necessary, so the people don't need guns anymore. So we have a heck of an argument on this. And as you can see, this is like most of the Constitution. It's uh, subject to interpretation. And you're looking at, at as you see fits. As you see fit. Now, there's been a recent federal court decision regarding uh, a gun law that was passed in Chicago. I believe people are still calling that the murder capital of the world, highest uh, rate of gun death in the world. Um, and if it's not number one, then maybe it slipped to number two, but it, it is up there. And this one banned the sale and transfer of guns. But before we get into that, let's take a look at, at some of the key differences between the conservative and liberal viewpoint. Now, liberals say that the Second Amendment does not give citizens the right to keep and bear arms. Well, the second phrase seems to, seems to do that. 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And because it is separated by a comma, it can stand alone. Uh, if you capitalize the T, you've got a complete sentence. Okay? So nonetheless, um, they do have a point here because the introduction uh, to the amendment does refer to a well-regulated militia being necessary. And, of course, the amendment doesn't go into detail to explain how that worked back in those days. Uh, it's just a simple statement acknowledging the truth of basically um, how states defended themselves and how militias operated. And liberals um, also uh, say, <laughs> they argue that uh, we, the citizens, do not need guns for protection. It's the role of local and federal government to protect the people through law enforcement, law enforcement agencies of various types, and, and even the military. So um, if, um, I guess if uh, two armed burglars come into my house, I go out and I say to them very nicely, um, uh, you guys, uh, you know, you're going to have to wait a few minutes while I call the police, and you'll have to wait till they get here to defend me before you can do anything. Well, that's just positively ridiculous. So... Um, individuals do need guns for protection. It happens multiple times every day in America. Liberals say it's the role of the local and federal government to protect the people. And people do not need to protect themselves. They also believe that more gun control laws are necessary to stop gun violence. I mean, they got a point here. If you had fewer guns, wouldn't there be more or less gun violence? And this would also limit the ability of criminals to obtain guns. Because a lot of the guns that criminals are carrying right now are once sold from a hardware store. To liberals, more guns mean more violence. And, uh, you know, you, you have to take this seriously. Just kind of weave through the fluff, fluff and all the Saul Linsky stuff and uh, take a look at what they're saying because guns are terrible things, and they do terrible damage to human and animal tissue, and it is something to think about. But, but, but another thing you've got to think about is there are a lot of people that like to go hunting. It's a sport. And they hunt with guns, and they hunt with crossbows, and they hunt with longbows. I knew a couple of guys uh, when I lived down in Fort Myers, Florida. They um, uh, were from a coastal area, a uh, shrimping area. And their idea of fun was to go out into the palmetto uh, fields and climb up a tree and wait for a wild boar to come along. They would jump down on that wild boar and try to stab it to death with their knives. And then, of course, they would eat it. <laughs> so um, it's not just guns. There are other weapons out, out there as well. But there are a lot of people that enjoy hunting. There are people that enjoy collecting guns. You know, like some people collect art. Um, I collect gargoyles. And, you know, people collect uh, butterflies or campaign buttons. You know, so some people collect guns. And there are people who like to get involved in these organizations that go about into, um, uh, what do you call it, where you go out and shoot your guns, see who's the most accurate gun competition. And sometimes they have these movement ranges where targets pop up. And they, these are good people, nice people uh, like you and me, but they just uh, – enjoy that kind of competition. 
um, firing ranges and, and those kinds of things. So there's more to it than just criminals with guns is what I'm trying to say. Now, the conservative view, of course, as you could guess, is pretty much the opposite. Conservatives say the Second Amendment does give citizens the right to keep and bear arms. Individuals do have the right to defend themselves. There are too many gun control laws. We have thousands of gun control laws. and They're probably right about this. Gun control laws do not prevent criminals from obtaining guns. And there are tens of thousands of guns every year that come across the border through Canada, through Mexico, up out of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, gun control laws in Chicago or West Virginia or any place else will not stop criminals from getting guns. More guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens mean less crime. That's an interesting statement. More guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens mean less crime. Now think about that. Um, I do remember a couple of decades ago, I believe it, uh, I think Texas passed a, uh, a concealed carry permit. That means that anybody um, 18 years of age or maybe it's 21 years of age or older uh, can go take a course in uh, gun safety and gun use and, and gun law and um, they pass the course and are certified and they can carry a gun. I have several friends that carry guns everywhere they go. They go to the grocery store, they've got a gun. Um, and these are law-abiding citizens. These are good people that aren't going to hurt anybody, but to me they seem a little paranoid, like, like there's a, a criminal with a gun around every corner. Um, I'm afraid I, I can't go quite to that extreme. But nonetheless, um, Texas passed this law and within six months, the gun crime law or the gun murder uh, uh, statistic began to fall. And at the end of the year, it was falling sharply. And um, other research has been done, and I'll talk about the most recent of those in just a few minutes. But first, let's go back to that Chicago ban on the sale of transfer of firearms. Gun capital of the world. Okay. A federal judge, and this is about six weeks ago, overturned Chicago's ban on the sale and transfer of firearms. And the ruling held that the city's uh, ordinances aimed at reducing gun violence are simply unconstitutional. Now remember, there are 94 federal district courts with 874 judges. These are the trial courts, the work courts. Then above that you have the 12 appeals courts, and above that the single Supreme Court. So this judge uh, up in Chicago, they picked the wrong judge. Now, uh, liberals know that they, when they know they can't pass, get something through a state legislature through Congress, they frequently go to court and try to win there. And they look for the right judge. They're liberal judges, they're conservative judges. Well, they got the wrong judge this time. His name was Edmund E. Chang, uh, and he's a district judge. And uh, in his ruling, he says this, and I quote, while the government, has a duty to protect its citizens, it's also obligated to protect constitutional rights, including the right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Okay, so this judge just got his head on straight. Uh, there are bad guys out there. They do come into your house. They do carry guns. They are looking to, to steal anything of value, and they will shoot you if you try to stop them. Okay, this judge 
um, acknowledges that, and he also acknowledges that uh, the Second Amendment has long been a constitutional right. And, you know, I think about this a lot. When, when, when a Supreme Court rules in 1973 that women have the right to an abortion and they never had that right before, why do they have that right all of a sudden? I mean, for 200 years they have not had that right. And now, because nine individuals say so, or five actually, um, uh, now they have that right. And the same thing is here. Uh, guns in America have been legal. Uh, individuals may own guns, uh, uh, rifles, pistols. Um, I think I agree with the liberals. I don't know why any householder needs to own an automatic weapon, although they would probably argue that sometimes criminals come into your house carrying automatic weapons. Uh, so I'm not going to go there with that argument. Anyway, uh, Judge Chang did go on to say that he would temporarily stay the effects of his rulings. In other words, his ruling doesn't go into effect um, until the city decides whether to appeal. And I'm guessing the city won't because it, back in 2010, the United States Supreme Court struck down what had been Chicago's longstanding gun ban. Now, this sale and transfer thing was a little bit different, and they wrote it to try to get to do an end run around that Supreme Court decision. And last year, Illinois legislators, the legislature, state legislature, was ordered by a federal appeals court to adopt and write and adopt legislation that would allow residents to carry concealed weapons in Illinois. And at this point, Illinois was the only state in the United States that still banned concealed carry. So, uh, you know, Illinois and Chicago are just doing their very, very best to pursue that uh, gun control agenda, and the courts are getting in their way and, and holding the line so far. So the law that was passed largely took away from Chicago and all of Cook County, where Chicago is located, their authority to regulate guns. But we'll see what Chicago and Illinois do next. Now, I mentioned studies. Several studies have been done, and, and they all show the same thing. Uh, most recent one was by Professor Mark Gaius of Quinnipiac University. And he found, um, after exhaustive research, that states with strict gun control, with strict gun control, have higher rates of gun-related crime than states with concealed carry permits. Now, why is that? Why do states with concealed carry permits? I mean, there are a lot of citizens walking out there with concealed weapons. Why are criminals less likely to commit crime? Because they know that they are literally surrounded by people carrying guns. And if they commit a crime, uh, those people will use those guns. So I guess that's the way they look at it. All right. Now, before we okay. leave this, uh, yes, go okay, ahead. You want to finish this topic and then um, we'll no, break you go for right a commercial? Ahead. You okay. Go right ahead. Um, let's break for a commercial and then when we come back, uh, we will pick up and I have a few questions here for you. So okay. we'll get to those in just a minute. The American Government and Elections class is a remarkable look at the workings of the U.S. government, the election process, and how the Constitution sets the stage 
for the democracy that we enjoy today. This video series contains 32 hours of class recorded with a live audience taught by accredited AP and award-winning professor of American history, Robert Woodrow Wilson. This class is sure to energize your students with a love of learning. The classes are on demand on your time to view from the comfort of your own home. Created specifically for the high school level homeschooler, this AP level class can be enjoyed by students of all ages. Recorded and produced by Media Angels, a name you trust for quality products. Need more information? No problem. Go to MediaAngels.com and visit our class link. Or go to AmericanHistoryKidsClass.com and get ready to claim your seat. Hurry, because class is starting. Okay, welcome back. My name is Felice Gerwitz, and I am your moderator along with Professor Wilson. And um, I do have some questions here, and the first is right along with what you were saying um, about that study, so that's kind of a coincidence, and that is um, the, the question more like a statement is, why is it that states like Texas that have um, a liberal uh, gun control, you know, or, or not as, stra- as strong, strict gun control. Um, I'm rewording this this question because it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. But anyway, um, why does, you know, do they have less uh, crime? And I think you answered that. So Right. I, I think we covered that. Now, remember that 49 states have concealed carry permits. Okay, that's pretty... Uh, uh, that is pretty open. That's a very strong statement uh, by those 49 states that they believe in in the Second Amendment as it has traditionally been interpreted, that the people do have the right to keep and, and bear arms. Mm-hmm. And where you find that, um, and, you know, I'll tell you what, it was started for me about three years ago when a friend of mine, I sing in the uh, Choral Society, and I sing bass, and the guy sits right next to me sings bass. And we got to talking, and um, he, he started talking about uh, he's really big on gun control. I mean, he's a member of the NRA and all that. And um, we started talking during break, and he mentioned that he had a concealed carry permit. Uh, permit. And I said, what is that? He said, that means I can carry a gun anytime, anywhere I want to. I said, you're kidding. I didn't know anything about it. Um, so... Yeah, I'm not big on that issue. I just, I, I don't know. I just, like I said, I'm not paranoid. I'm not afraid of anybody. I, maybe that, maybe I should be. Maybe <laughs> I should be afraid of people with guns. But anyway, I said, "Are you carrying right now?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "I don't believe you, Dwight." And he um, pulled a 22 pistol out of his pocket. He had on these baggy pants and a 22 pistol. Mm-hmm. Now I'm also the president of my neighborhood association, and we were talking about we'd had some break-ins here in the here in the neighborhood, uh, mostly breaking into cars to get money to buy drugs, uh, young guys, mm-hmm. and uh, and wow. um, uh, had a one of the member of our board. There are seven of us. Um, started talking about uh, a neighborhood watch, and we got into it. And I said, "Okay, Duncan, you research it, bring back some information. Let's see what we can do." And he said, uh, "He said we might also con- uh, uh, consider." encouraging people in the neighborhood to get a concealed carry permit, and um, that would help reduce crime if it's well known that um, this is pretty common in in, uh, in our neighborhood. And I said, I suppose you've got a concealed carry permit. And he said, yes, I do. 
I said, are you carrying right now? He said, yes. He pulled up his shirt. He had a big, ugly black gun on his hip mm-hmm. called a Glock. So there's a, a lot more of that. And um, I'm on a committee with some guys right now, and all of them have concealed carry permits. And wherever they go, their gun goes because they don't want to be murdered randomly and have their life ended at any given time. Mm-hmm. So I think this is all very, very interesting. And um, and again, I, I think that we should pay attention to liberals. You know, they're out there calling us names and all that. Just just ignore that and listen to uh, the few arguments they do, they do have and, and consider them because people are being killed with guns in America. And it, mm-hmm. um, if we could solve the problem, um, I would be all for it. So let's find the solution. That's right. a very good question, and uh, um, it's a good question because the, whoever asked that was anticipating, uh, actually predicting the future of where our discussion was going to go. <laughs> I, love it. I love it when people do that. Yeah, there there was interest in this topic, that's for sure. Um, so very good. And um, did you want to continue on? Um, do you have any more to say on on gun control? Because the uh, two other questions I have are yes. Off let topic. me okay. Let me oh. just finish up. I have three quotes I want to share with you, and I could have found ten thousand quotes dealing with gun control, but I picked out three from uh, three of my favorite people from history. The first is from James Madison, father of the Constitution, two-term president, Secretary of State. He wrote in the Federalist Papers this, and I quote, Americans have the right and advantage of being armed, unlike the citizens of other countries whose governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. All right, so he is basically saying that it's a question of government control or government respect or government fear. Should the people fear the government or should the government fear the people? I think Madison is saying that government fear the people. Now, guys, Madison, um, Jefferson, Franklin, Washington, these guys did not trust government. They did everything they could to limit the government of the United States, separation of powers, checks and balances, regular elections. And um, I'm afraid it um, was not enough. It also takes the people. It takes you out there making the difference. The second quote is from uh, the only genius um, among the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, acknowledged by all to be the smartest of them all. He also wrote in the Federalist Papers, he says this, the best we can hope for concerning hope for concerning the people at large is that they be properly armed. All right? So these guys knew and understood what governments do. And the last one, uh, in a way, is the most special because it's not an American. It's Mahatma Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi. Uh, you know, the, Rome, uh, the spiritual... Uh, great spiritual presence in India that drove the British colonialists out of India and who was basically a model for Martin Luther King, a man of peace and goodwill. And he says this, among the many misdeeds of British rule in India, history will look upon the act depriving a whole nation of arms 
as the blackest. So the British are there 150 years, and to Gandhi, the worst thing that they did in 150 years, and there were a lot of really nasty things, the British were not nice people in the colonies, was when they banned weapons and did not, would not allow the Indian people to carry weapons. And it's obvious the British didn't want to be opposed, and, and people with weapons uh, have a tendency to rise up and rebel, and the British wanted to control India and milk it for all the money they could milk it for, and, and yes, the days of empire, a lot of other people were doing it too. So uh, Madison, Hamilton, Gandhi, and thousands of others uh, would agree that American citizens have the right to own weapons. Now let me ask you one final question on this. One final question. I'm not going to answer. I just want you to think about it. So don't, don't send me a question and ask me what I think. I'm not going to tell you. I want you to think. Let me ask you the final question. I think you know the answer. Why would a government, why would a government, any government, want to take guns away from its citizens? And that wraps it up for gun control. Well, it almost wraps it up because another question came in on that vein. I thought it was a very, very good one. Uh, Sierra asks, and she said, isn't a permit, even a conceal and carry permit, not an infringement itself if you have to apply for it? Well, I, yes, I, uh, very, uh, very good point, Sierra. Um, you're thinking very deeply and analytically there. Uh, but you've got to understand that this is not the Wild West, you know, where anybody that wanted to could sling on a gun and, and, and go about without any control of law. But when you get into large packed cities, for example, like we have today, um, there has to be some sense about who's buying weapons. And the federal background check, I, you know, I know it's an, it's an intrusion. I know it's a, um, an inconvenience to citizens. Uh, to have to fill out the paperwork and go through this and have the government checking into your your life and your background. But nonetheless, we don't want criminals walking into gun shops buying guns. Uh, you know, sure, they're going to find them in the streets, black market, but uh, they're not going to be able to buy the top-rated guns, the most powerful weapons, and those kinds of things. Uh, we're just making it as difficult for them as possible, I think. Now, I found out that if I wanted a um, a carry permit, it's pretty simple. I go find somebody that does the course, and I spend one day for in the morning in a classroom um, studying things that I already know, and um, in the afternoon uh, firing weapons on a, uh, a rifle range or gun range or whatever, and which I've already done in the Army, so I don't really need that. But nonetheless, I have to pay, I don't know, $100, something like that, and I have to buy... Uh, Ammunition. So, yeah, it is a bit of an imposition, come to think of it. And, of course, I'm not going to do it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I just don't want to live in a society where I feel like I have to carry a gun. You know? I just, I just don't want to go there. Um, that, that, to me, is like, uh, uh, that's retro. That's, that's regressive. That's going back to, a, to an uglier time, and I just don't want to go there. But that's a, a very good question. It is a bit of an imposition. Although I don't think you'd find very many people, even conservatives, who would um, w would say that it's too much of an imposition on the rights of the people. 
I mean, a lot okay. of things are, are restricted, right? Like guns, uh, marijuana, alcohol, uh, and, and they they need to be regulated. Uh, TNT, uh, plastic explosives, uh, these things need to be regulated. And uh, if you want to use them, in this case carrying a weapon, then you have to uh, basically swallow your pride and uh, deal with the regulations. That's okay. my point of view, but that's just one point of view. Very good, very good. Okay, um, there's, there's a question here about a proposed law by Rand Paul that is set to legislatively declare that life starts at conception. If this was passed, how rapidly would Roe versus Wade be overturned and the abortion basically outlawed, and what steps, if any, would need to be taken, or would that be automatic? Well, first of all, that's not going that's not going to pass. Uh, I think that's Rand Paul getting ready for election, maybe, or uh, mm-hmm. maybe fighting the good fight for conservatives and um, and for pro life uh, for all of us pro life people, keeping that mm-hmm. issue alive. Um, it's not going to pass the Senate, and it could pass the House, but it's not a constitutional amendment. And if you want to overturn, there's only two ways to overturn a Supreme Court decision. One of them is that if a given court, like say the court right now, could overturn Roe versus Wade, it could. It could use any one of a number of abortion cases that come its way annually and use that as a vehicle to overturn Roe versus Wade. And the other way is to amend the Constitution. Now, if you pass an amendment, uh, amendment to the Constitution that that basically bans abortion, period, then the Supreme Court is helpless or mute. Um, they have to uphold the Constitution. So those are basically uh, two ways. So Rand Paul um, is advancing this notion right now for reasons of his own. I don't know, but take a look. Um, why don't you go to um, realclearpolitics.com and see if he is in a close race with somebody that's challenging him. Might be interesting. I'd be, I'm always interested. To be quite honest, um, I don't have a great deal of respect or trust in any professional politician, Republican or Democrat. Uh, to me, I like the old way. Uh, you elect these guys to office, and then you watch them like a hawk. And as soon as they betray you, you throw them out of office. Uh, that's that's my approach. Um, I've always thought that there's, there are two things uh, that you can't trust. One is a drunken bus driver, and the other one is a professional politician. <laughs> so that's just the way I see it, and I've okay. been around a long time. I, I have seen just so much. Uh, I, I think the last few years have pretty much jaded all of us. So, yeah, I think um, so. It, yeah. I think it's a, real, it's a real tough time for us right now. So hopefully um, classes like this one will help educate our young people, and uh, they will be able to um, answer answer questions uh, intelligently um, instead of not knowing, um, you know, anything about uh, the Bill of Rights. Um, Tara posted in the chat room, she said she watched the video by a political prankster who was asking students on a California university campus to name one of the Bill of Rights and not a single student could come up with one, which is no wonder our, our country is in trouble. So, you know, things like that. Um, 
you know. Yeah, there was another really... this guy. This guy was it wasn't really a prank, but he was uh, on a bridge someplace in the city and people were going to work and he was stopping them asking them to uh, sign a petition to help Karl Marx get elected to the Senate. Oh, um, yeah, I think I heard this. Karl Marx died in the 19th century. He wrote the right. Communist Manifesto. And uh, I saw 11 people. One woman smirked and walked by. The other 10 stopped and signed it. Um, these are adult Americans. They vote. I mean, they're out there and they vote. Um, mm-hmm. They are completely ignorant. And I, th- and I think in response to that last point, uh, that last question is that um, I think that uh, Obama and uh, his team in the White House and other liberals in different places in America are banking on the fact that Americans are ignorant and apathetic and totally disinterested in political affairs. Now, mm-hmm. if you want senators and representatives and even presidents to represent you honestly and fairly and to do what they said they would do when they were campaigning, then all you need is mass people's influence. I mean, we have to let them know that we are out here and we are watching and we are listening, and here's what we want, here's what, why we elected you, now do it. And please remember, Senator, Representative, President, that you work for us. You do not rule us. We rule you. And if they, when the American people were like that, the government res, government responded in the ways that it should respond, and problems were solved, and reforms were made to help the country and help the people. And um, we're not seeing that. And I, and I think these folks that are establishing this liberal agenda, UN, uh, European, whatever, all over America – are banking on the fact it doesn't matter what the president does, executive orders or not, there's not going to be much of a reaction against it, and therefore he will get away uh, with establishing these agenda items through executive orders. I think they're counting on that. And I think they're right. I think they're right. Here's another um, question, and that is... um that okay so i'm just going to ask you the last part of the question it said what are your thoughts about the reason for the fourth amendment being part of the reason for the second amendment and then i'll I'll read the rest of it. it says i hear i heard something the other day that focused on the fourth amendment as one of the reasons why there is a second amendment Although we are not currently focused on the housing of troops there is something to be said about all the fbi TSA, TAF, IRS, etc., with guns getting involved with people, especially those who are filing for Tea Party 501c3 tax exempt status. So, and then it was, what are your thoughts? Um, have you heard that, Woody? Um, there seemed to me about three questions in there. What was the okay. which one are we talking about? The bottom about? line is um, the second and fourth is, amendment. What are your thoughts about the reason for the Fourth Amendment, and was the Fourth Amendment um, created because of the Second Amendment? And you probably oh, want no. to clarify. Uh, no, not okay. at all. If, uh, if you hear that out there in the news or some professional politician, um, don't pay any attention. Those are two separate items, although I could see where the Fourth Amendment would be used to protect a person's uh, right to 
have guns in their own home because the Fourth Amendment gives us the right to privacy in our persons, in our papers, and in our effects, effects meaning households. And I can have a shotgun in my closet if I want to, and nobody has the right to come in and see if I have one. Uh, Now, if I commit a crime and they get a warrant from a judge and they have probable cause, okay, it's a different story. Uh, But as far as the other two are concerned, they are uh, totally separate. And again, uh, I think there are two reasons why they put in the Second Amendment. One of them is the necessity of militia reaction to uh, threats to security of the people. And the other one is tradition. I mean, these people are farmers and hunters. Uh, My granddad in the 1930s, Great Depression, he went hunting three or four times a week, and he never failed to come back with uh, meat uh, for the family. I mean, this is what you do in America. It's what we have always done in America. So for those two reasons, you got the Second Amendment. Now, the Fourth Amendment was written to prevent any government from issuing what the British called writs of assistance, um, which means permission to search, destroy anybody's home or barn or anything else, um, and it could be done by a military general. Well, we made sure that that wasn't possible, that law enforcement have to go to the, uh, that's executive branch, they've got to go to the judicial branch to get the warrant to come into our homes or um, to go through our briefcases or whatever. Um, so that, you know, that that's basically a totally different idea on the face of it than what you have in the Second Amendment. But again, Uh, The Fourth Amendment would uh, be there to protect the right of a person to have weapons in their own home. But um, they were, uh, the Fourth Amendment was not passed in order to protect the Second Amendment. I don't think the Founding Fathers ever imagined a day. I mean, they, they had no concept of automatic weapons and Uzis and all of these other horrible weapons that are out in the streets right now. Um, they had no concept of that. There were muskets, and <laughs> you could only fire two musket balls in in sixty seconds. And yeah, people were fairly virtuous back then, very Christian, uh, very un, you know, very little in the way of murder, maybe in the seaports, but uh, that's just about all. Uh, so the Second Amendment was just basically a, a continuation of of life in America for the two hundred years that preceded it. Um, okay, Woody, well, I, I think that's uh, that's all we have for today by way of questions. I really appreciate you um, sharing this segment with us on, on the gun c- control issue and what can we look forward to in, in the next uh, session. Okay, in the next session, of course, we'll uh, review the happenings of the week, and, and that's getting shorter and shorter because we've covered them all. And a lot of the events that we covered back in September and October are becoming issues and you are following those in current events. I think uh, next time we're going to go to uh, public welfare, and we're going to take a look at that um, issue. It's a tremendous expense. It's contributing to the national debt. One of those entitlement programs that um, seems to be spending increasing amounts of money and having no positive effects on poverty. So we'll talk about that. Okay. All right. And um, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Current Issues in the Constitution. 
If you'd like to join us live, visit our show page on ultimatehomeschoolradionetwork.com. And for more information about Professor Wilson's classes, visit AmericanHistoryKidsClass.com. See you next week.